Welcome, Thank Annabelle. Thank you, Joe. It's Welcome. nice to be here. I actually was saying to Annabelle, um, as I was driving in, I actually didn't have lunch and I was really hungry, and all I could think about was her recipe for this amazing pork crackling <laughs> in, her, in her cookbook. I was fantasizing about it. It's so easy. Well, actually, it's funny because um, I do actually look at a lot of cookbooks, and um, one of the things that I loved about the recipes in your book, of which there are a lot, is that they're really, really easy to follow. And one of the things that you mentioned is that you felt that you approached cooking um, with a slightly engineering <laughs> eye because your father was an engineer. That's right. Um, I was in um, Noosa a couple of years ago for a cooking workshop and one of the guys in the audience piped up and he said, how did you figure out how to engineer such a good recipe? And it was like, my dad isn't around anymore. I was going, yes! <laughs> Um, I'm so practical, and I also think I have never read a handbook in my life, which is actually so funny. <laughs> I write handbooks. I've never read a handbook in my life. I've thrown computer manuals out the window, and I'm almost a kinesthetic learner. So when I'm writing a recipe, I'm my own best audience, because if there's a pothole or suddenly you're going to end up in Timbuktu, then I go, I've missed something. Yeah. So... One thing that interested me is, is you know, you, when you're actually um, coming up with the idea for a recipe, like, how do you approach it? Like, do you suddenly have, see something like pears on a tree and think, right, I'm going to come up with a new recipe? Or how does that work? So it is often an iterative process. It's also sometimes a bit of a magpie process where you might go to a really nice a restaurant somewhere and you eat something delicious and you think, Mm, I wonder if I can figure out when I get home how to make that. Um, I'm very inspired by nature. And the more I cook and the longer I cook, the, the more I see my role as really being a conduit for nature and then something that goes on the table that is simpler than it probably ever was. But we're so lucky with this global pantry of flavours we can access that you can cook that pork and I could show you how to do it in an Asian way using coconut cream or I could show you how to do it with um, Middle Eastern flavours or go to South America because once you understand the method of a recipe, it's like a toolkit, you go, okay, the reason that pork works is because there's milk in it and the milk changes the proteins. You're going to cook it long and slow so therefore all that turns into collagen you know, and, it, and you get this, um, the collagen turns into um, gelatin. Which is when you so so there's chemistry. So when you understand those things, and I always try and give those ideas away in my books, so that people, um, the more informed you are, then you know you're less likely to fail. Because I think there's a risk. So do you have fails? Do I have spectacular <laughs> fails? I think the worst fails are when your family won't eat what you made. <laughs> Then you know it's really bad. <laughs> I, we were in America once and I made this soup. You know, I don't forget the failures. <laughs> all the comments that go with them. And I made this soup that was, um, it was a pumpkin soup and I put all this apple juice in it and it was just disgusting and sweet and revolting. There was nothing I could do and nobody ate it. <laughs> Usually and I bring out alcohol at that point and then with <laughs> alcohol and then they'll forget about the fact that they had a dodgy dinner. Because I think there was the eggplant fail too, wasn't there? Yes. yes. <laughs> Can you fail with eggplant? If you don't cook it enough. Ah. So the thing about eggplant is that when you cook it properly, it should collapse completely, and then it is just the most unbelievably delicious thing. But if you undercook it, it stays kind of spongy and sort of tough, and it isn't nearly as sweet, and it's 
if you give it to people like that, they will go, I hate eggplant. Yeah, exactly. So this is an amazing book, and I must say that um, I've read quite a lot of these kind of, um, not like this, but I've read biographies, and I did approach this with, um, I think I had an idea of you, but when I actually read it, it actually... <laughs> Blew it out of the water. No, well, I actually, I had an idea because I'd watched you on the Free Range Cook and I had an idea of you and I actually talked to my mum about this and mum read the book as well. And when we read this, we had this completely blown out of the water different idea and I said to mum, she's really crazy and quite <laughs> wild. <laughs> she's actually not what I thought she was like at all and she's done some really dodgy things. <laughs> well, actually, it was quite interesting because TV, they wanted me to be kind of the expert and perfect, and they, now I do Instagram and I can free roll it and have a bad hair day and all sorts of things like that. But when for TV, because we um, we joined up with a really big international company, and right. so they wanted, and I ended up being the number two property after Jamie Oliver, which was fantastic. Wow! But um, they didn't want me. They needed me to be this idea of somebody, which right. was quite hard. Because That's I'm not, interesting. I'm not by nature. I'm by nature. I'm much more free spirited. Yeah, because it was quite perfect yes. and lovely. Yes. And yeah. I. I mean, I didn't write in there, but in series two, I think we made these chocolate, um, the molten chocolate puddings. I don't know if anyone has made them. And just right at the last moment, which is something I'm slightly prone to do, I thought, oh, I'm not going to put them in those ramekins. I'm going to change the ramekins. And I'm going to do them in long, narrow ones. Well, an hour and a half. Later, when we'd gone through 23 <laughs> different <laughs> iterations, and they'd all come out solid in the middle, and my producer was, had given up being anxious and was just rolling around on the floor laughing, I realised that because they were narrower, the mixture cooked more quickly. Mm. But, you know, that was 23 into the <laughs> thing. Take 23 on the chocolate molten puddings. I got there in the end. That's the whole thing about TV. So when I read this book, particularly about you know your early years, you you were quite wild. So what interested me is that even when you were seven and eight, you were quite a foodie. So yeah. you know ordering brains in a restaurant at age seven <laughs> is quite out there. <laughs> it caused a sort of you know a, a, an Antarctic blast of horror from my parents and the waiter. <laughs> um, I think I've always been a curious person, and. I think I was very lucky to come from a family where I was unconditionally loved and people didn't, I was probably, you know, I drove my mother mad. I used to run, I used to do really naughty things to get her attention and then she'd run around the house with a wooden spoon chasing me and then I'd get outside <laughs> and we'd do two laps of the house and she was getting quite a long way behind and I could run into the kitchen, into the pantry, grab the can of sweet and condensed milk and hide and lock myself in the linen cupboard. So I was that really <laughs> bratty, annoying child. <laughs> but actually, your mum sounded amazing. Yes. Like, the stories about her, you know, she used to actually set the breakfast table the night before and have it all laid out beautifully. And she took all that sort of, um, the occasion of food really seriously. So that must have uh, it impacted on off. you. Yeah. yeah. And they were always having entertaining. And it wasn't about spending lots of money. They just always had people over and there was always food and there was always yeah. some wine. And, and I just, I would get up and I was supposed to be in bed and you'd sneak behind the sofa and hear everyone having so much fun. Yeah. And I think that was what was instilled in me, that you could actually have so much fun around the table. 
Yeah, and she was obviously a really good cook. Yeah, she was a really good cook. Yeah. yeah. And she and my dad had um, time in America before I was born because um, my dad had been a Fulbright scholar and so she came back with all these American cookbooks and she'd done home science and things. So she was a very sort of food-oriented person. And she also seemed to really um, just appreciate that coming together around the table, yeah. didn't she? Around, And that's something that's really sort of impacted on you, isn't it? Absolutely. And um, I think for me, because I kind of didn't start cooking, I liked being outside when I was little, and I used to pick all of her little tiny buds from all her flowers that she thought she was going to have for vases <laughs> and um, mix them with various mi mixtures of, you know, soil and stuff from my dad's garden and, you know, gravel and make all these pies and take them to her. And then I think she went, she must have got really sick of this child doing this. And then she thought, well, what about if I get her inside to do this? Because I, I guess I really like chemistry. Mm. Mm. I never thought of, of studying chemistry, but it fascinates me. So you were also really practical because you went and spent a summer up the Whanganui River and you were really just going bush and cooking over campfire. But you obviously loved that. I loved that, yeah. I think, I think there's a very interesting um, uh, sort of, it's not a philosophy, it's a hypothesis by a guy, he'd been an entomologist at Harvard, Edward O. Wilson, and it's about biophilia. And it, the, the premise really is that we are a species, we come out of nature, we forget because, you know, we, we think that we're not a mammal, but we are. And so we have this very profound response to nature. And I always find if I am outside, whether I'm in the garden or I'm in the bush, it makes me deeply happy. Mm. And I think I was lucky to find that out at an early age. Mm. And we were of that generation who burnt our bras and, you know, there was a whole, you know, when Kirk was in power, there were government subsidised ohu schemes, you know, like communes. So there was a whole movement in New Zealand that was mm. very left-wing at that time. And so we, we embraced that, but we kind of went even further and became these very Mao-oriented Maoist hippies. <laughs> Little did we know how many people died under that regime, <laughs> but it was incredibly idealistic. But it was also very free, wasn't very it? Very free. Well, you, you were just running wild. Mm. And, then, um, and then that then led to... Um, your life of, as a possum trapper. <laughs> and this is what really stunned me about the book, actually, and really surprised me, is because I did have this view of you, and then here's this <laughs> wild woman shooting <laughs> possums and running off with some really bad guy. Um, <laughs> so I was... He was obviously very good-looking. Yes, he was. <laughs> um, and I had been with... Um, this really nice boyfriend and his friend, and we were sort of very earnest and we didn't take drugs or drink or wear makeup or, you know, well, he wasn't going to wear makeup, but I, I didn't wear makeup. And everything was very intellectual. And I don't write about this in the book, but we did, you know, you did Carl Rogers stuff and it was all like a big head trip the whole time. <laughs> and the, we ended up building this 52-foot catamaran. I built a cockpit, very pleased to say, um, and did a lot of sanding. And then... When we got on this boat, I was sort of starting to be unhappy anyway because it was really, I like doing things. I hate just intellectualising about... Anyway, we got on this boat and I was just so sick. I was just beyond the pale sick. For 10 days, we had a storm. It was just terrifying. And when I, we arrived in Gisborne, um, I just didn't actually want to see any of those people ever again. <laughs> so this 
a very good-looking guy came along the wharf, and four days later, I moved in. <laughs> <laughs> and then about some time later, I mean, I, you, you know, you sort of talk about crossing the tracks. We were shooting Skeet out at the gun club because he was getting his hand in for duck shooting. And um, he, got, he was a big drinker, and he got really drunk. And then he sort of, I was driving him home, and he got out of the car, and he threw up, boof, on the side of the road, and his teeth came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hadn't been expecting that. <laughs> uh, but I stuck around. I was going to say, was that like a deal breaker? No, oh. unfortunately it should have been, and it wasn't. <laughs> Well, actually, yes, I can, having um, read the story um, for a second time, the deal breaker might have been when you found out he had four kids that you didn't know about. Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up, um, he, he was an alcoholic, actually, and I ended up, when I found out he had these four kids, I mean, I was only 19, 20, and I was brought them home, they were living in a children's home, um, I had one of them full time, and I, I, you know, he wasn't working, I was running three jobs to pay, I'd bought this house, pay the mortgage. Um, I had to collect milk bottle money to make an, get enough for a loaf of bread to make them lunch. So I lived really on that other side of the tracks mm. to understand, and actually came to understand what it's like to live at, at that level and how it's all very well to have the time to think about things, but when you haven't got enough money to feed people, it, it becomes very stressful. You were, at, you were really poor. Really poor. Yeah. I mean, I could have gone, my parents weren't rich, but I could have always gone home. Mm. But it, I never saw that as an option. Mm. Yeah, I was very, I fell in love with the wrong person. You, probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely. But there was a good silver lining out of that. Well, there was. There's a few Mr. Darcy moments where you see the good-looking yeah. man on the horse. Yeah, I had a Mr. That. Darcy moment. <laughs> Um, which is still in my life today. And, you know, I sometimes think if I hadn't gone through all of that, you know, being a possum trapper and crazy life, mm. I would never have met my husband because I was poaching on his farm. <laughs> <laughs> Unbeknownst to me. And I heard this guy coming on a horse and I thought, oh, perhaps I'm not supposed to be here. So <laughs> I climbed up a big puri tree, as you do, and he stopped his horse right underneath my um, tree. And honestly, <laughs> my heart was going like this really loud and I thought oh, he's going to hear my heart no and he was just going on about terrible possum trappers and so I um eventually looked down and he was so good looking I nearly fell out of the tree <laughs> <laughs> I thought oh that won't end well <laughs> he never saw me and then when I moved to town and decided to get back into mainstream society I found a flat with two girls one was very tall one was very short they were cousins and one day this guy turned up and he was the tall tall um, one's brother, and I thought to myself, I know you, but you don't know me, and he's the man I married. Which is lovely, isn't it? The man with the long legs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a standing joke, because my name Langbein means long legs, and I never got them. <laughs> so, I got the name, but I married the legs. <laughs> so, do you remember anything about what you cooked from those possum trapping days? Like, were you really living off the land? And Not would you just actually sort of be a, like a bit of a hunter-gatherer and... Well, you would go, we'd go in, because I lived in the Urawera's um, in State Forest 93 for two and a half winters, and then we'd go in for shorter trips. So you'd go in for two or three weeks at a time. It was so cold. I mean, you'd crack an egg, it would be frozen. The towels would be frozen. Um, and so you'd go in and you'd take, you know, a sack of rice so that you could have this all. There was a really awful hut at the back that had a chimney that didn't really work. It was just and so you're cooking over a fire, 
get home late, it's dark, and try and make something. Uh, take pasta and take rice and um, sometimes we'd take eggs and cheese because it was just like one giant fridge. And then we'd shoot deer. And that was, and then just cook. And I had a toasty pie machine, so I could make <laughs> toasty pie. Nothing went mouldy, it was freezing. So, and you were actually quite a good shot. You quite I liked it. really good, I liked it. And I think back now, I couldn't do it now. You couldn't? I couldn't do it now. I look back and I think, how did I even do that? But mm. I loved it. Would you butcher the venison yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and I would happily, you know, if you go duck shooting, I'd be the one that would, you know, pluck, gut, do the whole thing. Mm. That's impressive. Yeah. So then you went down and did some study at Lincoln, mm -hmm. had your Lincoln experience, and then um, you ended up back in Gisborne. Um, tell us about that entry into sort of the restaurant world. That was actually, I sometimes think, um, Joe, that I've had this fairy godmother. Yeah. And I've had these fairy godmother moments where, and I think this about life, it sounds a funny thing, but philosophically I think, if you look up in life, there are corners and, and turnings all the time. But if you're looking up, you'll sometimes see them. And, and they'll, if you're not looking up, you won't see them. So mm. this thing of chance can come your way. And sometimes it can be, you know, life as we know is quite complicated and you can get a left ball that's really hard and not a great one. But um, you can also have these moments. And so in this particular occasion, because I had the dodgy boyfriend, I spent a lot of time cooking and Julia's child had become my sort of, my, my, my salve. And I'd go to her mastering the art of French cookery, which mum had given me when I was about mm. 14. She knew I was a cook before I did. And um, I'd just spend a lot of time doing all this cooking. And the boyfriend, really, he was happy with a steady diet of beer. <laughs> <laughs> so I needed to find someone. An outlet. An outlet. And so over the back fence was this, there's this couple, John and, Mar John and Venice, who had, um, I've called them a different name, so hopefully they don't mind. I tried to track them down. Um, and they, um, they had a bakery. And so I just pass stuff over the fence all the time to them and it might have been the lobster thermidor or the, you know, <laughs> whatever it was. And then I went off to Lincoln and when I came back from Lincoln, I went back to Gisborne because I'd made really good friends now with the cousins and just generally made really good friends. And I was walking down the main street and this, you know, toot, 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 toot and I looked up and this man waving and he does a crazy U-turn in the man, main street and he jumps out and he says, oh my God, I've been looking for you. I have built a restaurant for you. Like, <laughs> oh, well, I don't know how to cook. You, so know. you were like 21, 22? Yeah. yeah, 21. And I said, well, I'm saving up to go to South America. And he said, when are you going to South America? <laughs> and I said, mm, probably May, if I remember rightly. It was something like May, April, May. He said, well, that gives us six months. So suddenly I found myself behind the stove at this tiny little restaurant that was called Morelli's. I had a blackboard menu, and then Elizabeth David became my muse and my go-to, and I really, where Julia had been so prescriptive, um, I liked the broad brush strokes that Elizabeth gave you, the bits of a recipe that were really important, and then you could free from there, you could free form from there. It, that way of cooking, that Italian way of cooking, has just always appealed to me because it's very um, satisfying and quite simple. Is it kind of sort of, uh, not messy, but it's not very yes, it's precise. Not, yes. It's actually very... It's more like country cooking, right. I think. And I always, you know, I'm not a chef, and I'm really clear about that, and I learned that from um, a wonderful French woman who turns up a bit later on in the book. But I think, for me, cooking, I've 
very deeply bedded in that idea that it's about um, nourishing other people and a way to show your love. And it's it's a really simple way to be. You can be resourceful and you can, um, you know, just bring people together and and build a good life. When often it can be quite hard to build a good life because you can't control so many things in life. But if you cook for people, you can build a good life. You strike me as someone who you're never really afraid of a challenge. In fact, that's almost like quite addictive, is it, to you? When used someone to be. Used, used to, to be. be. <laughs> <laughs> Getting wiser in my old age. <laughs> because actually, um, then we've got, we go to the South American phase, which was really challenging for you, yeah. wasn't it? Yep. I had a really big adventure in South America. I met some friends who'd gone to Buenos Aires who were... Um, very left-wing, and when they got to Buenos Aires, because they weren't married, they weren't allowed to stay at home with the family. So we, when I arrived, they were living on, they were squatting on a building site. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's <laughs> not really what I was thinking I was going to be doing. And um, it was a very dangerous time to be in Argentina because that was when that whole mm. movement was happening and they were putting kids into, you know, raiding kids out of homes in the middle of the night and chucking them in planes and throwing them out in the Atlantic. And, you know, we got shot at by and and that was when I thought, hmm, I haven't really come all this way to get killed in someone <laughs> else's war. So, But I, you were also really lonely, mm. you? you really missed home. Yeah, I got really homesick. Mm. And that's what, when I finally ended up um, in Brazil, after about, I don't know, maybe 10 months I'd been on the road, and I ended up, I rented a room in a little house in Brazil, and all I wanted to do was cook. Because I just knew that was something that could ground and anchor me. And... And it does, and it still does. If I'm out of sorts, I'll go in the kitchen. And that was a really, you know, I just cooked and cooked and cooked and cooked and cooked. It was crazy. I think they thought I was crazy. <laughs> I know, and um, it's funny because I have actually talked to my own mum about this, about the nurturing aspect of cooking and how what it does for you and all that sort of stuff. And that comes out really strongly in oh, your book. Nice. But it's very nurturing yeah. for you and I for the people is. that you're and cooking for. And I think for. I learned that at a very young age, maybe five, when you're baking, and there's this easy sense of pleasure because you're working with things like butter and sugar and flour and making biscuits, and everybody thinks you're incredibly clever. <laughs> you get to lick the beater, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, you've done something that's quite rewarding, mm. and it wasn't that hard. Mm. So I learned that really young. You also had possibly the worst bout of food poisoning, yeah. didn't you? I got terrible food poisoning. I had this, I never knew that you could get sick from ceviche. Yes. <laughs> you can get really sick. Really sick, <laughs> yes. And I ended up, my sister had a friend at the embassy in Lima and I ended up having a couple of weeks in bed at the embassy. And, um, and my parents, my poor parents were going, come home, come home. And I was like, oh no, I don't want to come home. <laughs> But you came up with a wonderful idea, didn't you, I on did. how to actually make some money? Yes, well, it, was all, it all started with because of the fact that I was just doing so much cooking. And I, I had my, the group of people that I was um, associating with and ended up making friends with were all Argentinian. And I had that piece of paper that when you were backpacking in those days, you had a piece of paper that was a friend of a friend of a friend. <laughs> and so you're clutching this piece of paper. It's your only lifeline to... to somebody who, who might put a roof over your head for a little while. So I was doing all this cooking in this tiny little kitchen in, in a very beautiful village called Buzios, 
And I, um, one day, one of the guys said to me, could I make croissants? And if anyone here has been to Buenos Aires, you'll know that at about 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the evening, you always have croissants. And they're very short and crunchy, they're, and they're um, delicious, and you have them with dulce de leche, which is caramelised bread and Oh, pasta. yes, I do remember <laughs> that. So dangerously good. So this guy said to me, you know, could I make croissants? And when you're young, you say... Yes, sure. sure. And then figure out how to do it afterwards. And so I phoned mum and I said, how do you make croissants? And I was trying to find, because she did these lovely drawings for me, of how, on to, how to fold them. Yeah. And there was no butter, so I had to render all my own lard. And then, Ooh. but that made them very crisp and short. And, um, and then suddenly people, you know, are knocking on the door wanting to come and buy them. And, and then I did this deal with this fabulous, really, really big um, guy from Uruguay who was called Golero, which is the goalkeeper, and he definitely wasn't one. Um, and I, uh, I got free rent and use of the kitchen in exchange for managing the hotel in the afternoons every day. And he'd go sailing. Well, I'd just make some, get some of my croissant dough and make little tiny croissants and put anchovies in them, open up the bar and make caipirinhas, play backgammon with all my friends, and... 93 kilos later. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they gave you a nickname, didn't you? Didn't yes, they? La Gordita. <laughs> the chubby one. The chubby one. <laughs> <laughs> and very funnily, when um, my husband and I got engaged, we got engaged in Buenos Aires, and we went out. I'd met this... They said to me, oh, you must meet... Because I was there when Cuisine first started. I went and wrote a story. Um, it was when they had that first direct flight from Auckland to Buenos Aires. And I went out, um, they said, oh, you must meet our most famous foodie. His name is El Gato. And I thought, well, I know a guy from El Gato. He was my neighbor in Brazil, you know, and we used to play backgammon. And um, I thought, it's quite an unusual name. And we turned up at his country club, and it was him. It was my neighbor. And he went, La Gordita. <laughs> <laughs> was so funny. But you were happy. Yeah, yeah. One thing that actually did really make me laugh in this is that, you, you know, you're an amazing cook, but not quite so good a waitress. was <laughs> <laughs> such a bad waitress. So tell us about oh. your waitress tour oh. stories. <laughs> I had, so I came back from South America with 93 kilos. I'd been to Spain in between, but I hadn't managed to lose any weight. Came back to New Zealand, and I went home to live with my parents in Wellington, and, um, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't find a job. So I thought, oh, well, I'll get a waitressing job, that's great. And they made you wear, in those days, really, really tight <laughs> black dress, high, high black shoes and stockings, and oh, my God. And I'm quite klutzy, you know, just ask my husband. I'm not ever going to be a figure skater or anything like that. I'm really quite klutzy. And so the first night, the table in the corner at a very fancy restaurant in Wellington had ordered Five or, five or six seven. people, seven people had ordered crayfish. And the lady in the corner, who was a little old lady, had ordered the soup. So I had this <laughs> stack of dead crayfish bodies that I was collecting. I just leaned over to get the soup bowl, and the whole lot went down this man's suit. <laughs> the back. The entire stack of seven dead plates of crayfish. <sighs> that was the first night. And, the, and then, you know, like there was story, the chef was an absolute tyrant the way that you hear about chefing. And I'd never been behind the scenes. I'd cooked in a kitchen, but it was my kitchen. And so I didn't know anything about hospo or anything. And he was just, you know, a knife-wielding, terrifying chef. And the next night I went out and I 
They said, oh, it's right, we're going to put you on the coffee service tonight. <laughs> it's well, safe. <laughs> it's safe. It was so not safe because it weighed a tonne. And, you know, you're on these sort of very high... They weren't any shoes that you could get around with in a hurry. And carrying quite a lot of extra weight. Um, and I went to pick up the coffee jug and it, somehow the tray had been set up that the milk jug was attached to it that meant that the milk just jettisoned into this man's <laughs> lap. <laughs> and that was the end. Yeah. <laughs> no more waitressing. No, never. <laughs> You've had these amazing sort of like phases of your life because then you got into um, dressing food for shoes, which yeah. I found really fascinating because someone who, you know, you look at sort of the food on ads. You have no idea. I have no idea that mm. actually all the hideous things that mm. they do to make it look like that. So that lovely steaming ham, it probably isn't now, but it used to be hydrochloric acid. <laughs> it's just, it's, and what were some of the other ones? that you Lots of tampons to make steam. <laughs> That's right, the tampons. <laughs> it was just, and when I did it in America, you had, I mean, a food stylist would turn up with a sort of like a, a plumber's kit, so much stuff to make almost fake food. And I don't know if I, I think I did write about it doing a very funny thing on the West Coast. Did I tell that story about on the West Coast and I nearly killed the director because he was a yes. diabetic and yes. nobody told me. And then we had to do this, um, the, it had rained, it snowed in the, it had, was supposed to snow in the Rockies and the snow had melted and so the whole crew relocated to the West Coast. And the one thing that they forgot to tell them was that it rains <laughs> on the West Coast. There might be nice views when the sun comes out. <laughs> Um, and I just had this hilarious time, but it wasn't, it's always hilarious in hindsight. Robin and I were talking about this earlier, you know, those terrible disasters that you have give you great stories for later. At the, at the time, you're literally like, what do I do now? And they wanted cherries, because they were doing yogurt, and I had this opening scene with the sun and the table with the honey coming through and every cornucopia of fruit available in the world, and I was phoning Harrods for cherries, and... <laughs> Dean and Deluccia for cherries and Balducci's. Nobody had cherries, so I got the art department to paint polystyrene <laughs> balls with various colours of nail polish. Oh my goodness me! And then when I went into the, because then the art department, the makeup department got crossed. I was using all the makeup remover and the nail polish. So I went into the local four square shop, and there was a bowl of, you know, like cherries, perfect fake Eastern European glass cherries. <laughs> But no, the links that you go to, to... Yeah, it's amazing. Do things so like that. the next phase for you, I was sort of thinking, this is kind of like when your kind of almost culinary education really kicks off, going to America. And um, you wrote to Julia Child. I know. And, yeah. Well, she didn't reply, but her husband, her husband did. did. It was so nice. And I think it was my mother who said, well, why don't you write to Julia Child? And Julia Child had always been a big thing in our house because my mother had come back from America and she was crazy about Julia and... And, you know, we had cookbooks and da-da-da-da. Um, and I had this cookbook that she'd given me. Um, and so I wrote to her and I said, look, I'm crazy about food. I'd started writing to The Listener, um, which in itself was a bit of serendipity. I had this catering business. I was doing food styling. But I just didn't know where I could take it. And I didn't want to be a chef. And, and Paul, her husband, was nice enough to write back. And he said, Julia and I have been chatting, you know, and... Um, Julia thinks you should come to this conference in America. 
So I sold up my little catering. Well, I didn't sell out. You know, you can't really sell a catering business when it's just you running around in a little Honda car <laughs> feeding people. <laughs> but I went, okay. I sold my car and gave up the lease on my apartment in Auckland and went to America and went to this conference. And it was just like, you know, boom. Boom. All these people that were really involved in every aspect of food, often things I'd never thought about. And I made... Um, some wonderful friends and um, ended up living in New York in the apartment with this fabulous French woman. And it was one of those things where she was at the conference and she was a very elegant divorcee. She was about 45 and she had two of those big medals from the French government. I had no idea how famous she was. And um, one was for services to foie gras and the other was to French agriculture. And um, she'd gone through this message boss and she didn't have any money. And she was living in New York, helping set up the foie gras business in upstate New York. Anyway, she said in that gorgeous French accent, you know, I am going back to France for the summer, and you can come and stay in my apartment. You see. And I'd been, because my mother, when she saw me disappearing into the wilderness of the Wanganui River and, and being a hippie and everything else, she took me to Europe. So I'd been and to America. So I'd had this lovely experience of going to art galleries everywhere and big studs and billowing curtains and when the taxi driver finally dropped me off in Brooklyn in Dean Street <laughs> and I saw what looked like dead bodies on the pavement, <laughs> actually asked him if he could wait until I was safely inside before he left. And then I got inside and Danielle, it was this really, really rough neighbourhood we were living in in Brooklyn because she didn't have any money and I didn't have any money, and, but we just had the best time and she, she was the one who really taught me mm. what it meant to be a cook. And, you know, she could make something out of almost nothing. But it was always started with a, a leek or a potato or an onion or... Uh, and this will be the first year that I haven't seen her. Really? Yeah, I usually go and see her every year. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. She's so she obviously had a woman. very big influence on you, that basic, starting with something basic. Yes. And, and, and just making something out of whatever you've got. Yeah, and welcoming people. Yeah. There were always people coming. And... She, um, there's actually on TVNZ On Demand is the film that they made about oh, her about life. about her, yeah. And it's called Haute Cuisine. Mm. Um, and in French, it's called Les Saveurs du Palais. And it's really worth watching because she is so courageous. She is the most fantastic woman. She's older now and she's just still brave. You know, she was doing this thing with refugees and she was going, I'm going to open up my house and I'm going to have a woman and her family and I'll teach them the way we cook and they can help in the garden and... You know, wow. she, no one else in her village was doing that. Amazing. And she's lived in this house that's been in her family for 700 years that they know about. And they found the records in the attic only a few years ago of how, what, how many great-grandfathers ago selling truffles to Louis XIV. Isn't that oh incredible? Oh, my God. Truffles. Yeah. So with you, you've, you've like written so many wonderful cookbooks and things. And, you know, when you think back... Was your first one really scary? Like, thinking to yourself, are people going to cook this? Are they going to like it? Are they... No. <laughs> <laughs> I cook for myself and others. MFK Fisher said that. She's a great writer. I love her books. Um, so you were quite confident. I was. And I, what that first book was, was a collection of my listener recipes. Yeah. And what happened was, I had this business and I was making money and I thought, well, heck, why don't I make a cookbook? So I published it myself, and when the 10,000 coffees arrived in my flat garage, I went, oh, holy crap, what do I do now? 
But the, I was so hooked on that jigsaw puzzle of how a book goes together. Because in those days, it was all cut and paste. So you couldn't typeset anything. You, you know, it was all literally, if you wanted to change a word, you had to cut it out and stick the new word in. Oh, wow. It was so laborious. And we had it all set out on my on the flat, on the floor of the flat. And honestly, I just, I, there was something that went inside me. I, this is what I want to do. You loved it. I loved it. I loved the way you make a book. It's like a fashion collection in a different way, if you were a fashion mm -hmm. designer, because food is, is, you know, we eat so differently today than we did even three years ago, or five years ago, or 10 years ago, and as we will in the future. And so there's a, what I like about making a cookbook is you try and make it whole. You know, you try and make it whole this way as well as when you're reading it that way. So it feels coherent. It feels like it all belongs together in a way. And it's not. It's of a family. So when you put your cookbooks together, are you thinking about what you like to cook or what you'd like other people to have a go at cooking? No, I'm thinking about what I like to cook. So it's all about what you want to cook? Yeah, because I often think I'm my own best audience because I've been a busy working mum all my life. And so I think if it works for me, and I'm, I'm not a fussy, finickety cook, if it right. works for me, then, then I can make it work for other people. Yep. So I was, I meant, when I say I don't mean to sound, because that sounds very egotistical, because I'm really interested in how I can make yours and yours and yours and yours and yours life easier. Because the more easy I can make the cooking process, the more fun you're going to have around the table, and the quicker you get to that table, then the less intimidated you feel and the, and the more successful you can feel and the more yeah. fun you're going to have. Yeah. So that's been my guiding thing all the way through because actually I am inherently interested in how other people cook. But I'll often go, well, actually, you could miss all those steps. And right. that's just, the only thing you need to do is that. And make it simple. Yeah. Because some people are quite intimidated with the idea of cooking, aren't they? I think it's become more and more intimidating and it really actually annoys me that a lot of these reality TV shows create this bar that somehow home cooks have kind of adopted that they think that they have to make themselves a Michelin restaurant when they've got people coming over for dinner because actually it shouldn't be about that. And I think, I even do it to myself and I catch myself going, guess what, I'm the person that needs to have the low bar. Yeah. My, you know, because I need people to come and have a really simple meal at my place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you do get caught out, and I did cook a really dodgy dinner when Danielle came to my house for dinner, uh, <laughs> probably 20 years ago, and, you know, I invited all the glitterati of Auckland food and wine scene, and I got home from work at 6.30, they were coming for dinner at 8, and I took a leg of wild pork out of the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, oh that was dear. doomed for disaster, that one. Oh, that's and not then good. I made a Fijoa sauce and it was so disgusting, I had to put it down the incinerator. <laughs> um, I couldn't even put it in the compost because that's how bad it was. <laughs> Did not want to see that again. And it was just like dominoes of going, dunk a dunk, dunk a dunk, dunk a dunk. And you know, there were no supermarkets open in those days that you could quickly run out to get something else. I found two racks of lamb in the freezer, so everyone got one chop. <laughs> And Daniel said to me the next morning, she said, oh, I'm a little bit worried about you, you know. You were perhaps a little bit busy because everyone got outrageously drunk because there was nothing to <laughs> eat. Because there was no food. Um, and I was pregnant. <laughs> I was pregnant. Oh, my gosh. There was a reason that I so badly made that dinner go wrong. <laughs> Do you love being cooked for? I love being cooked for. And you could make me a boiled egg and I'd be happy. Yeah. It's... Um, and that's what I always think, you know, coming back to this idea of people being intimidated by food. I think 
good food should be the right of all of us and possibly some of the very best meals I've had in my life have been in the most humble situations. And going to India and going to this, um, it was a cauliflower farm, an organic cauliflower farm, and they had 63 people living on just over five acres and they were able to be entirely self-sufficient apart from their spices. And it's really a difficult climate because it's very, you know, like hot and hot, and dry, dry, dry summers and cold, coldish winters. And they insisted we stay for lunch. I had my two kids. And they made this beautiful cauliflower curry, all cooked over the fires in the courtyard. Um, there was a dal going. She made some very quick, a millet flat bread. And then one of the kids went and picked a whole lot of coriander and ground it on the rock in the courtyard and made this really lovely mm. fresh chutney. And we sat and ate this incredible meal. It was so delicious. And I felt so humbled mm. because it was just this generosity. Um, are you a sweet or sour person? You do like your desserts. I am a savoury. Are you? Yeah. Mm. I I think I would be still a Michelin blimp if I liked <laughs> sweet. <laughs> no, I'm a savoury girl. Now, there's some. This book is about your life, but you, there's a lot of recipes in here, which is wonderful. How on earth did you choose which ones to put in out of all your favourite recipes? And I made a whole lot of new ones. So that one oh, that you're looking the there, this one. Yes. So that's a tray bake Caesar salad because I thought, oh, well, we all like tray bakes because tray bakes are great. You just bung everything in the oven. So I thought, well, why don't I just bung in the bread for the croutons, the bacon, the tomatoes, the chicken, chuck it all in the oven, let it cook, take it out, make the dressing, toss it with some cos lettuce, job done, and parmesan over the top. That's one of my <laughs> favourites actually because it's so easy. Yeah. <laughs> So, because you initially were, were only going to have 12 recipes yeah. that just kept going up and up and it up. Does. So, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like a cookbook with a story with it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because mm. there's 60 recipes were going to be 12, and then I thought, oh, I'll do three per chapter, and then suddenly we got to 60. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've done your TV series. What's coming up next after this? Is there another project in the wings from Wanaka? Maybe. We'll wait and see. I think sometimes in life you have to shut some doors and then other doors will open. Um, I really enjoyed writing. I, I got so much pleasure out of writing and I did it through lockdown. I just put myself away and was really disciplined and wrote for five hours a day and then reviewed each, each morning. I'd review and then start again. Um, my daughter, which I'm very excited about, is uh, she's coming home after Christmas, and she's got two cookbooks she's wanting to write, so I oh, will wow. help her with those. I don't know if you saw, we did a book, it was called Together, yes. and um, she's a great cook, so I said, well, here, I'm going to teach you everything I know so that you can, she's excited about taking things to the next level. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that'll be fun. Right, well, look, I thought we'd see if anyone in the audience um, has any questions. There are some people with microphones. Um, do you ever not feel like cooking? Do you ever order oh. Uber Eats? <laughs> do you know what? We went to someone's house and they had Uber Eats the other day. I said, how do you do this? <laughs> so I like, I like eating out because it gives me inspiration. Sometime, the only time I really get sick of cooking is sometimes when I'm in a whole thing where I'm recipe testing. Because recipe testing is an incredibly intensive process because you actually have to document everything and make it this very safe roadmap for other people to follow, which means sometimes you make things two or three or more times, and you're always going to have to make it at least three times because you're going to make it, someone else is going to make it, you're going to have its picture taken. And then, and because I'm trying to be efficient, I make 
you know, I'm getting a lot done. And then at the end of it, you just go, oh my gosh, who, who's going to eat all this food? And I don't want to eat that food again. And I just actually want a boiled egg. <laughs> simple, simple. So that's interesting. So with the testing, you are you trying to make it, um, excuse the phrase, idiot proof so yeah. that it, it can't fail? Yeah, because I think the thing about a recipe is if a recipe fails, you don't think that's a crappy recipe and throw the cookbook out the window. You lose confidence. Right. And I, I, in my experience, that's what usually happens. And then you get, you sort of think, well, what did I do wrong? Mm. And so then you're much less, you're much more risk averse that you don't actually want to try something new again in case it does go wrong. Um, so I've sort of made it my mission to try and make, take that risk out. Do you try and um, do it so that, you know, you don't have to have the precise measurements? So the only time you need precise me measurements really is with baking because it's chemistry. Right. So if you think I'm going to make the cake rise more because I'm going to put lots more baking powder in, it actually will go the opposite way because you produce so much carbon dioxide that all those bubbles go out and then the cake sinks. Once you know if you're making a stew, you need some liquid, you need long, low heat, and it's going to take, if it's 150 degrees, it's going to take about three and a half hours to turn the collagen into gelatin. So once you know that, then you can go, well, I'm going to make a Mediterranean, a Moroccan stew, or I'm going to make a coquavan, or not, chicken doesn't, because it's not tough, but, you know, or also buco. So you can learn that way. And really where you're going to go wrong is in the, is in the balance when you're cooking savoury food. So it's sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami, which is your best friend as a cook. So umami is this lovely savoury deliciousness mm. that you get out of things like miso and Vegemite and stock and soy. parmesan cheese and soy sauce and tomato paste and anything that gives you that mm, lip smacking is umami. So, and when you cook with umami, it's a really good way to get flavour working without having to add lots of fat. So when I, I did go to a nutrition school in upstate New York and I learned a lot about how to make food really tasty without it being and healthy at the same time, so you didn't have huge, you weren't your calorie, but you know, your energy balance was right. And we used a lot of umami, and it was a great thing to learn. Because um, if you cook with butter and cream, it's always going to taste good, but you are going to wear it. <laughs> <laughs> it does taste good, though, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have favourite foods? Are you a seafood? I love seafood, mm. yeah. I love, if, so, you know, you get often get asked that silly question, what would be your sort of, you know, last meal or ultimate meal. Yeah. Well, I'm in my diving suit. <laughs> We're on the beach. There's a fire. There's a really nice glass of wine. It's probably the noodle Chardonnay. <laughs> um, we've just got some power. Somebody's yeah. long-lined some fish. Yeah. I might have made a little green sauce and some new potatoes and some... It's just that. So simple. simple. Yeah. And it's nature. For me, it's actually about eating a lot of um, sort of whole grains and vegetables. And that's the bulk of my diet, really. And then I'll add some fish or chicken or protein in. But it's a very vegetable and grain-centric diet, or beans or legumes. And then rather than... And I often think when I go to the supermarket, I look at what goes in my trolley. And because I grow a heck of a lot of vegetables myself, I'm buying things like... I don't buy the... Um, Cheese is probably my weakness because I love cheese and I eat a lot of cheese, but I don't go and buy 10 packets of chocolate biscuits. So um, it's less of a discipline because it's not a diet, it's just a habit of eating and cooking now, which I know how to make food taste good with this umami. And I know that gram for gram, you know, a gram of 
protein is four calories, a gram of carbohydrate is four calories, a gram of fat is nine calories, a gram of alcohol is seven. <laughs> annoying, that one. Mm. <laughs> that is annoying. <laughs> so, so it's not difficult, and I don't feel in any way deprived, because I think this idea of a diet is something that then you go on it and you go off it. Whereas if you just make this new habit of eating close to the earth, then you'll be satisfied also because, you know, everyone goes, potatoes are fattening. Well, a potato's maybe got 110, 120 calories in it. Try eating 12 of those a day. You know, you're going to be so full. So I think I eat lots of potatoes and pumpkin and kumara and, um, yeah. I mean, even the night before I came away here, you know, I wasn't going to get anything do any shopping and I had lots of anchovies in the fridge and it was my lovely PR um, person from Allen and Unwin and we'd been driving around in Auckland the week before and she said, I get my kids to eat broccoli by making this um, anchovy crumb. And I just thought, I'm gonna make pasta with all these vegetables I had and anchovy crumb and you just cook some oil, heat some oil with lots of garlic and lots of anchovies and then chuck in some panko crumbs, coat them and then I just bake it until it's crunchy and then it'll keep in a container. Mm. And then I just cooked asparagus, silver beet, spinach, cauliflower, all out of the garden, just lightly sauteed them. I blanched the um, cauliflower first and, and then tossed that through pasta and had the anchovy crumb. It was so simple. I didn't even, didn't even need parmesan cheese. It was delicious. Mm. So that was, and I went, well, now I've got that idea. Now I've got to turn that into a recipe. Hello. Hi. My question is about your daughter, actually. How hard is it going to be for you to let her do what she wants to do? So e <laughs> and it's a really good question, and guess what? So easy. It's so easy, because I feel I've written 10,000 recipes, and I am ready to go to her here. I don't, I'll always be interested in writing recipes, but she's really interested, and if I can help her do that, she's got a fantastic palate. And my, the most important bit of my job, I think, is to try and show her that particular, which is like the engineering skill of making sure you don't miss things out and make assumptions for people. Because even though you're doing that recipe for yourself, you're actually doing it for others so that they're successful, so that they can enjoy the process.